0: As we approach from the distance, we see a mighty fortified city. It dominates a narrow strait between two great bodies of water and sprawls down the side of a natural rock formation with impressive walls delivering into a harbor full of trading ships and war vessels. Atop the hill sits an impressive palace with domed temples that are producing an ominous plume of black smoke rising ferociously into the sky. As we approach, we see that a dozen buildings are engulfed in flames, stoked by a crowd roaming the streets in chaos. Closer still, we can see that the frenzied crowd is swarming the streets in a path of destruction, culminating within an immense racetrack adjacent to the palace. The horde is a sea of green streamers and banners, chanting in unison, Nika! 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 As they try to swarm the palace walls in a rage. The confusion grows and the foreboding roars get louder. The amassing herd does not seem to notice the emergent sound of marching boots that begins to encircle the upper stands of the stadium. The soldiers creep around the enclosure and once the crowd has been completely encircled, through the gates storms another rank of infantry, flanked by heavy horsemen. The mass of green is gradually pushed back into a thick throng in the center of the arena, causing them to shout louder and louder. The noise grows into a raging mantra. Nika! 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 Then, in an instant, the soldiers storm the crowd, slashing and hacking away at the turmoil, causing the green pack to push back in a squall of rage. But it is no use. The unarmed protesters are hacked Ah! mercilessly to the ground. One by one, they are crushed by the thousands until the chorus of chanting is horribly silent. Finally, the last of the greens surrender and they are drawn away by the soldiers until all that remains is a sea of red and green carnage lying scattered on the racetrack. And as we fall back again on this terrible sight, the flames burn into the dusk and slowly night falls upon the city, blackened even darker by the column of smoke that dominates the skyline. And gradually the world falls silent and an uneasy calm follows us into the distance And the city glows on the horizon. And though the chants of the crowd ring in our memory, the night falls into uneasy sleep. This is the story engine. Welcome to the Story Engine. I'm Tristan Verboven. In our last mini-episode, the dreary day-to-day affairs of a small city in Vandal, Africa, escalated suddenly to a terrifying rebellion at the hands of mysterious tattooed agents. And while the people of Big Water and the subjects of the Vandal Kingdom have not yet heard this terrible news they are nonetheless wary of a suspicious man travelling by ship and touching in at the port of Sardinia. In the harbour of this port town is a fortified custom house. In one of the holding chambers a man sits on the floor and he's flanked by two vandal guards. Yet, despite his unfortunate current position, he has an air of confidence and anticipation. A loud clanging comes from the door and it opens to a guard calling into the room. All rise for Governor Godas! Before the man can finish his announcement, Godas enters the room and is removing his cloak and gloves. So this is him, calls out Godas. The man rises to his feet. You speak Vandal? Goth? Greek? Any language you like, he replies in goth. Godus stands before him, looking him up and down, and after a moment he says, Well, you're definitely not a sailor. He takes his hand and examines it. I'm not a merchant. Your posture tells me... "'You're not a soldier, either.' "'He looks at his face. "'Nor a noble. "'And besides, "'what noble would be sailing this part of big water alone "'without his entourage? "'You're a real mystery, you are.' "'He paces around him "'and finally settles again before him. "'You've been at sea a while, I see.' I know you stopped in Methone, then in Syracuse, then in Tripoli, before coming here. He looks him deep in his eyes. A spy, perhaps? You only have to ask, my lord, the man returns his gaze. I am no spy. I'm a messenger. A messenger? For me? From whom? I've just come from Africa, where King Hilderic has just lost his throne to the nephew Gelimer. Soon you will be asked where your loyalties are. That news has reached me already, and you are no Vandal messenger. I've not come to you with that message. I have come to take one back with me to the city of Constantine. The great leader would like to know if you will continue your service to Carthage. If by chance he makes an enemy of the usurper, he would like to know where everybody on Big Water stands. Is that a threat? messenger of Constantine? If it is, I can assure you that we Goths will never submit to your Roman god. It took us centuries to rule our own lands, and we shall never go back to bearing the yoke of Rome. You needn't worry, my lord. Justinian has no designs on your island. He asks, simply, that upon your next tribute to Carthage, that you keep that tribute to yourself. The messenger maintains his gaze. And only that. Godus narrows his eyes and strokes his bearded chin. Rome will take care of the rest. Well, well, well. What strange business is this, dear listener? And who is that mysterious fellow in the harbor at Sardinia? And what of this new... Vandal King of Africa. Gelimer the Usurper. Well, We shall soon find out, for we are headed to Carthage now. And after a week's voyage across big water, we can find deep in the fortifications that protect the heart of the African Empire in a dusty cell, illuminated only by the glow of a barren slit. It's an aging bearded man his fine garments and tatters about him, collapsed in a corner of a stone vault. The cell door opens, and in a menacing silhouette stands Gelimer, the king of the vandals. After a moment... The old man sits up and raises his head to face the figure in the door. And when he sees who it is, he groans in contempt. Did your king not please you? He moans. Did he not? Did he not give you everything you wanted? Was it not enough to be a wealthy prince? You are always the jealous one, Gelimer, even as a child. We must not let this Roman god into Carthage, you damn fool. Don't you see? The Romans, they're all among us. and Their foul god. It will bring their evil to Africa again. We must not let their temples here. You forget, my boy, the blood of the empress of Rome is in our family line, back to the time of Huneric and Geyseric himself. But you, you don't have that blood, do you? Those Romans that live with us, they're Carthaginians, too, as are the Berbers and the Moors. Rome is in ruins ruled by monks and bookworms, prisoners of their own guards. Geyseric bled them to death so we may live in peace. I may not have Roman blood, uncle, but I have Vandal blood, and our blood is here in Africa, and so shall stay the blood of any who try to take it, be it Rome or Constantine or anyone. Constantine meant us no harm. Justinian is a fine leader and a friend of Carthage, or at least he was a friend of mine. And so it seems, dear listener, that there will be no reconciling this family feud, and the new Vandal king will have to prove himself by his convictions to ensure his popularity on the throne. And soon enough, he will have that opportunity. But first, let us stop in at Rome. It has been quite a journey, dear listener. Big water has seen many an empire rise and fall. We have seen a city grow among the seven hills from a huddle of settlers on the northern banks into a great empire. We have seen other nations fall. The great commercial empire of Carthage has gradually given way to these newcomers, and in its persistence, we watched it burn in a blaze of glory. We have seen wicked barbarians drift in from the north, and we have seen great armies engulf glorious civilizations. Empires of stone fall into savages. Blood-stained valleys where fates were decided. The dreams of men dashed in fury. We have seen it all the seven hills of Rome have risen and fallen, and now they sit in silence, draped in tranquility, buried in settled dust, home to a sleeping god, and resigned to a terrible truth, the bones of a legend, the fate of all glory. from atop a great fortified temple. The bearded man in fine cloak and linen. Cassiodorus and his young apprentice look out upon the seven hills of Rome. In the glimmer of dusk, they can see the drab canopy of grit that hangs above the winding streets and buildings. From where they stand, they can see the great arena where the people of Rome once gathered in masses to witness gladiators in brutal duels. They can see the broad forum and its temples that once were bustling with life. They can see the vast Circus Maximus that once roared with the screams of crowds cheering on their charioteers. They can see the market squares that once brimmed with commerce, the aqueducts that once flowed with water, and the tenements that once fueled the din of a great city. But now, as the sun gently drifts behind the horizon, we hear nothing, or very little at least, The buildings are long deserted, aqueducts dry, and the grand squares are homes to flocks of animals lazily grazing upon the grass growing between the unkept ruins of a ghost town. But what has become, dear listener, of the great city of Rome and the settlers that once made their home among the seven hills? What has become of the empire that once held the helm of the power on big water? The great conquerors of Carthage, the legions of Caesar that defeated the Gauls, the builders of roads and bridges and great temples? How could they just Abandon this eternal city and all its wealth and power just to let it rot. And who are these barbarians who now live in the ghost of a skeleton town? Still to this day, they wander in from the countryside in search of food. There's nothing left to plunder. There has been nothing for some time. Wave after wave of menacing tribes have picked it clean, marveling no doubt at its sad splendor. The city of Earth, muses Cassiodorus, in all its glory, my boy. The boy gazes into the quiet abandoned streets. Cassiodorus continues in a solemn tone. It was not always the kingdom of the Ostrogoths, you know. "'Nobody is old enough to remember what it was like before, "'what it was like in the days of the great empire, "'before the fearsome Vandals came, "'and before the Huns, and before the Goths. "'The Romans have all gone, "'the ones who survived, at least. "'They have fled east to build a new city among the Greeks.' They've left Rome to God, to the priests, and to the barbarians. What is that strange building there? The boy points to a great towering stadium, now tangled in vines and crumbling from neglect. That was the amphitheater, where the Romans once had their gruesome games. But that was in the days of their pagan gods, The people of Rome, they gathered there to watch spectacles of death and suffering, the slaughter of animals, and they pitted captive barbarian warriors against one another for sport. Even Christians, who they paraded in chains and murdered to the cheers of thousands, that was their place of worship before they found the grace and glory of Christus and the one great God. Of all the temples, this was the one that united them under a single Rome. They worshipped war and victory. It gave them peace, even wisdom. They built the city out of stone and marble. And they thought it would last forever. They thought they could rule forever. I've heard some of the pilgrims in the tent city, says the boy, that Rome fell into ruin and died because of the Christians, and that the kindness and forgiveness of Christus made Rome weak. Far from it, boy, replies Cassiodorus. Christus has given Rome everlasting life. If Rome had kept its pagan gods... would be as dead as the temples you see in ruin. But with Christus, Rome shall be eternal. Is Christus not the embodiment of the seven hills itself? Are the Romans not builders like Christus? Did they not stand by their convictions and serve their God? When Rome was at the brink of ruin, beaten and bloody facing its own death. Did it not keep its faith? Rome bore its cross like our savior. Cassiodorus takes a small statue from within his robes. On it is carved the very savior, Christus, dying on a wooden cross. And he kisses it tenderly. And like our savior, dear boy, Rome, too, will rise from the dead. It has died upon its cross, and now it is buried in its tomb. But make no mistake, Rome shall someday emerge from its crypt to live again for eternity. He lets the effigy hang once again from his neck. Do not forget that the Vandals who plundered Rome, and the Goths, who now tend Roman ploughs, are all Christians too. When the Huns rode on to the Seven Hills in search of revenge, it was our Holy Father and the High Priest of Rome who stood out in the road, alone, but for the grace of God, and he turned Attila away. And then the Vandals, came to pillage the city, and again it was the high priest of Rome who stood in the road alone, weaponless, but for his faith, and he saved the great city from the same fate as Carthage. Cassiodorus pauses to motion the sign of the cross upon his chest. Though they worship in their own savage way, even these Ostrogoths have seen the glory of Christus. Try as we may to bring them to the light of the Roman way. Their king even thinks himself a Roman and dresses his tattooed skin in robes crowning himself the emperor of seven hills. He's a good man and he protects us, but he is the king of the earth. He's the king of the Goths and we, we are the last of the Romans. In here, in the fortress, in the tower, we keep the city of God as did St. Augustine. Who was St. Augustine? inquires the boy. He was an African from Numidia in the southern banks of Big Water. He came from the city of Hippo. His father a Roman and his mother a Berber. He devoted his life to the pursuit of knowledge and earthly pleasures. He looks down at the boy. They were not all murderers and thieves, you know. The true essence of Rome was its knowledge of earthly matters. The study of science, the physical world, and the arts. The study of words. All of which they kept in perfect divine scrolls to be preserved for eternity and beyond the life of men. He kneels down to the boy's level. Augustine kept a library of these scrolls And in these pages, he kept the secrets of the universe, the science of the mind and soul to be passed on forever. For everything that is done, everything that is said, and everything that is created is the work of God. Even the pagan texts in all their savagery and carnal sin account the glory of God. The Bible is the book of God. And all books, all knowledge, they are the Bible. Whatever happened to Augustine's library, inquires the boy. When the vandals came, and from nowhere it seemed, they made their way to big water and ravaged the African coast in search of a homeland, City by city fell to their pirate siege until they came to Hippo, where Augustine rallied to preserve his city and his library and and civilization itself. He knew what was at stake if the city were to fall. And the Romans of Hippo fought a stubborn defense of their fortress. Were it not for his prayer and duty to God, it would have fallen to these pirates For upon his death the city finally fell, and when the Vandals put the city to fire, so taken they were by the beauty of the Roman temple and by his marvelous scriptures that they were spared of the ordeal. And when the Vandals went to conquer the riches of Africa, the city was gone, and so was Augustine. But the pages lived another day. But now what of the Romans of Carthage? Asks the boy. One hundred years later, Carthage is still ruled by these pirates. And while the Roman Christians still live among them, their temples are now to be turned over to the savage Arian god. And the wealth is in the Vandals' hands alone. But the Romans have not forgotten who they are. When Geyseric king of the Vandals robbed Rome of its wealth. He took with him a noble bride to his son's throne. The Vandal line holds Roman blood, my boy, and with it the Christian faith. Perhaps someday an army from the city of Constantine will come and deliver the empire back from the barbarians, the boy wonders. Only God can deliver us. Here in the city of God, We are no longer involved in the affairs of men. They wage wars while we live in peace and tranquility. Those who still live in the city of earth, they must find their own way to God. And until then, we must continue our work. We must see to our books, preserve them, copy them, and keep their words illuminated for the generations to come. We must preserve Rome's great treasure for the day when it rises from the dead, as Christus our savior once did. To God, my boy, a thousand years is but a day. the two continue to gaze out into the city that has now succumbed to the darkness, the only light coming from the fires of the clusters of life among the ruins, and night falls upon the city of earth. And that, dear listener, is what has become of the seven hills of Rome, a post-apocalyptic ghost city home to Gothic nomads ruled by a Christian savage dressed in Roman clothes, but not completely dead, but not completely dead, its legacy and soul trapped in books, locked in a fortress vault and guarded by a priest class of the last Romans on earth. Well, not the last ones. Rome's finest and richest all fled east as the great city wasted away. They found refuge in a new home on the eastern reaches of big water, among the Greeks, in the city of Constantine. They are still Romans, to be sure, but they are Eastern Romans, Rather than blending the wisdom of the Greeks with the temperament of the Romans, they have instead retained the temperament of the Greeks and the wisdom of the Romans. We make our way there now. And so we leave the haunted ruins of Rome past the abandoned temples, down the Tiber River, to the seaport of Ostia. This once bustling center of commerce is now as deserted as Rome, but a few ships still sit in its harbor. We board one of these ships, and weeks of open sea, until it reaches land in the form of a vast archipelago. An ancient people, the Greeks, who the Romans admired for their wisdom and knowledge and their building techniques. They once even worshiped their same gods. And now that the Romans have migrated among them, at the end of this labyrinth of islands, sits the gleaming city of Constantine. The ship approaches along a narrow strait and delivers us to the imposing port surrounded by magnificent fortifications. The walls, they must be at least as thick as a man is tall, and three of these monsters encircle the great city. Constantine has the same superb Roman buildings as you would find in the internal city itself, and its temples are made even more impressive by their bejeweled magnificence. And unlike poor old Rome, the markets here are bustling with life. The streets are jammed with people. All is well in New Rome. Well, actually, building a new Rome has not been easy. There have been the usual warring neighbors to the east, and not the first invaders, and definitely not the last, But New Rome lives by virtue of the foresight of their great fortified walls. Three rings of the strongest, most menacing battlements ever seen. Even Attila the Hun and the greatest army of all time could not pierce them. Others have tried. The Romans of New Rome will not be victims of the same mistakes that brought down old Rome. But the new world has new dangers. That cannot be stopped by the walls. Sea pirates threatened trade, uneasy alliances, and most recently, an angry mob of horse racing fans smashed some temples and stormed the palace. These most recent events have left the great leader, Emperor Justinian, wondering how to bring new life to the Roman people. we find ourselves in the heart of this magnificent new city. Walking in a procession is the toast of new Rome. General Belisarius, who can claim among his accomplishments a new treaty with the Eastern tribes, a new order in the city of Constantine. He walks through the winding streets with his entourage in tow, graciously receiving praise by onlookers He's followed by his wife Antonina, who prefers the luxury of her private litter, and the ever-present the devoutly loyal Procopius, who lurks obsequiously a few paces behind, watchfully committing every event to his mind. Then there are Belisarius's elite guardsmen and a huddle of attendants. As they migrate through the busy square to the Hippodrome, they pass the still smoldering remains of the recent violence. It was only days ago that mobs had burned temples, and even stormed the great leader's palace, leaving a wake of destruction. And it was with no joy or honor what our great general had to do to his people to stop it. And now that the dust has settled, we can bury any misgivings we may have had in the security of New Rome and his duty to the great leader. Leaving the common entourage to their work, our three make their way to the vast oval structure of the Hippodrome. The stands are empty but for the great leader and his court who are set up comfortably in the gallery. And as they approach the imperial booth, Antonina squeezes her husband's arm excitedly. Theodora, wife of the great leader, greets her warmly. Antonina, my dear old friend! It has been too long since we have seen you. Oh, the smell of the circus always reminds me of my childhood, she squeals. Do you remember when we ran about this place as girls? That was another life, my dear. Theodora embraces her warmly. Come sit over here with me. She turns to greet her other guests. General Belisarius. The general bows ceremoniously to her and to the great leader. It is a great honor. He motions to his scribe who is already bowing. You know my Procopius, of course. It is difficult to imagine you without him, jokes the great leader. He haunts you like a shadow. It is you I want to see, my dear Belisarius. He motions him away to sit with him in a draped enclosure that looks over the hippodrome. Belisarius takes a place on the mound of voluptuous silk and embroidery. Wine is poured. And Justinian speaks in a low voice to the general. Rome owes you a debt of gratitude, says the great leader. Look around you, general. This is the very race track just days ago that was the scene of a terrible rebellion, hell bent on destruction. Those hooligans put their own city to flames. We might have had to flee the palace were it not for your interventions and the resolve of my dear Theodora. He reaches back to take her hand. He was ready to take flight. We even had a ship docked in the harbor, interrupts Theodora. But I would not hear of it. Where would we have gone that is safer than our home? As you know, General, I was not born into this noble house, but now that I wear the purple, I intend to be buried in it. Rome has both of you to thank, interjects the great leader graciously. He returns his gaze to the general. No army or siege engine exists that can breach the walls to protect the city of Constantine. New Rome is safe as long as it stands united. But these walls will not protect us from the enemies within. "'Hopefully now that the rebellion has been quelled,' "'replies Belisarius, "'we can enjoy some peace.' "'Well, we cannot yet count our blessings,' "'says the great leader bleakly. "'Our new Rome is in constant peril. "'Look around you. "'Our people have forgotten who they are. "'You and I are the only ones "'who still speak the old language of Rome.' You may have put the Persians in their place, but it won't be long before some other enemy will come to our gates. We must remind them that we are Romans, that Rome is the light. He pulls out a scroll from beside him. You no doubt saw the ruins left by the rioters as you came here today. He unrolls the parchment. Behold, the temple that shall be built in its place. The parchment reveals a magnificent temple with flowing domes and spires. This temple will be greater than any that ever stood in Rome. Justinian's eyes are glowing. It shall be a great tribute to the eternal God. Its splendor shall be known throughout the world, so that the kings of big water should want to join us in its glory rather than make us their enemy. Justinian marvels for a moment in silence before rolling up the scroll again. I've drained my court of corrupt senators and officials and with their confiscated wealth, I shall give my people the greatest temple of all time and it shall be built quickly and spectacularly. He puts his hand firmly on the general's shoulder This is where you come in, my dear Belisarius. I'm counting on you to bring back the glory of Seven Hills and the wealth of Carthage to our new Rome. Belisarius looks at the great leader, puzzled. I give you the great honor as protector of Seven Hills to take your army to Africa to liberate it from the Vandal heathens and give it back to the people of Rome. Belisarius takes a moment to let it sink in. It is an honor indeed, great leader, but that is not all, continues Justinian. Once Africa is back in our hands, you shall take your army to the eternal city of Rome and liberate the seven hills from the savage Goths, so that big water is under our control, and we shall never be chased from our home again. It is an ambitious plan, great leader, and worthy of the great legacy of Rome. You were the man for the job, Belisarius. You have my eternal gratitude and loyalty, great leader. Come then, roars Justinian jubilantly. Let us enjoy the show. I'm anxious to inspect your army. Where is the military parade you have promised me? Belisarius motions to Procopius, who has been lurking discreetly nearby, to commence the procession. And at once, the sounds of trumpets echo throughout the great stadium, through the gates march legions in perfect convoy, bearing their colors and trophies. Leading the parade, the division of foot soldiers, they are clad in loose-fitting mail, oval helmets and carrying shields and spears, each with a bow and a quiver of arrows on his back. They are followed by more soldiers with similar weapons but different regalia. These are the Stratioti legions, from Thrace, Illyricum, and Isauria, great leader, says Belisarius proudly. Archers and infantry in one, smiles Justinian, a far cry from the armies of Scipio or even Caesar. The days of the Phalanx are over. Indeed great leader, the battlefields of today are no place for a man who is not either launching or riding. The barbarians we face today, they can do both. Lucky for us, the Gothic chieftains are bound by treaty to lend us some of their best. Behind these ranks, we hear the rumble of mounted regiments, and at the sound of the hoofs in the dirt, Antonina and Theodora rise to get a better look. The first to come around are a menacing band of horsemen with horned helmets and flowing cloaks, their famous curved swords and bows bobbing as their nimble beasts trot forth. Oh goodness, shrieks Antonina. What foreboding creatures! What tribe gives us these savages? Those are the Huns, my dear, replies Belisarius, but have no fear, they're mostly tamed. Imagine all those years that Attila tried in vain to breach these walls. That's Justinian. All they had to do was join our legions. The Huns have served Rome well in the past, says Belisarius. As long as they are kept in check, they are the finest and toughest horsemen I've ever seen, and I'm happier to fight with them than against them. Belisarius keeps his eye on the parade. But they are not even our finest mounts. Look at Rome's new secret weapon. The din of hooves rises to a thunder and through the gates rides a gleaming mass of horse and steel. The riders wear ominous masked helmets that seem to flow from head to toe and drape their horses in a blanket of plated armor. The men carry in their hand a small spiked buckler and are fitted with a lance, a sword, axe, and bow. They are the toughest and deadliest cavalry in the world, These Belisarius, they're impervious to any attack, ground or air, they're proficient in every sort of weaponry, they are as quick and maneuverable as any horse in their ranks. He glances over to the great leader. And best of all, they are in Rome's army. Behold the future of warfare. The armored legions pass the booth in a valiant show of arms and Justinian's excitement is visible on his face. How soon can we get this army to Africa? Asked Justinian to his general. I have 16,000 men in my expeditionary force at the ready, great leader. I will need at least 600 ships if I am to get there safely. Once we have touched in at Sicily, we will need to find a beachhead in Africa to unload this enterprise. The Romans, still living in Carthage, will welcome you as a liberator, my dear Belisarius. The Vandals have overstayed their welcome, and they have become lazy in the warm African sun. Still replies belisarius it will be difficult to gain the element of surprise oh don't worry about that general I have agents at work as we speak get your men to Africa and march them upon the city of Carthage Rome will take care of the rest And so we have it, dear listener. War. And all its glory is on the horizon. A new and improved Rome is on a collision course with an old barbarian foe. There will be a great reckoning. For soon the peaceful horizon from the shores of Africa shall be blackened with the armies of Rome. As we enter a new age of darkness over Big Water. Right here at the Story Engine. Sure to subscribe to this series, join our Facebook fan page, and leave your comments. You will be the first to get our next episode. Find out the fate of Carthage and Rome. Just to warn you though, there will be lots of blood, drama, and betrayal coming up. So stay tuned. I'm Tristan Verboven. This is the Story Engine.